2: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Delaney Hall, filling in for Gwen Maxi, and this is Resound. I'm standing at the corner of Wabash and Randolph in downtown Chicago. It's morning time, people are on their way to work, and as you can hear, it's very, very loud. Cars are driving by, and a man is shouting on the corner. A jackhammer is tearing up concrete across the street, and another train just went by overhead. This is the din of so many people living and interacting in such a small space. And on the one hand, it's sonically exciting. But on the other, it's just noisy and exhausting. I'm gonna go try and find a quieter place. There. Okay, that's better. Some etymologists trace the word noise to the Latin word nausea, which means literally seasickness. Others trace it to the Latin word noxia, which means injury. Either way, noise is a drag. So today on ReSound, we step back from the cacophony of everyday life and play stories about whispering, silence, and quiet. We'll start with a very quiet piece indeed, called Whisper Essay, by Laura Mayer. Whisper. Like this. 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 Most often I
3: whisper, Um, almost never, because I can't think of a time to whisper. I guess if I was whispering, I would mostly do it in church. I think that's when I'd probably whisper the most. And this makes me feel like I'm a serial killer.
0: My name's Ashley. Today I really
3: wanted a milkshake.
2: I like whispering because then people have to lean very close to me, so I can grab them. When you whisper,
3: your vocal cords pull tight together. Your breath wicks through the taut sinewy strips, creating the turbulent hiss of air known as a whisper. Whispering is unvoiced, which means the larynx does not vibrate. When you whisper, your larynx is about the size of a bitted grape and sits in the top of your throat. If you could squeeze it, it'd feel hard and spongy, like the fatty nub of a chicken drumstick. Larynx. Your larynx looks like a yellow tent made of flesh. It keeps its flaps wide open when air passes through it to breathe, and slightly. flaps open and close to change the pitch and volume of voiced words. When you inhale, the air goes through the fleshy flaps and down into your throat. Even though whispering is voiceless, articulation is the same in a whisper as in a voiced speaking Whispers are some of the most targeted modes of communication. You whisper to a friend so your enemies won't hear. You whisper in a library so the librarians won't hear. You whisper to another person in bed so only they can hear. But whenever you whisper, your voice is silent. The object of your communication has to catch your whisper when you can't throw your voice. In December 2008, scientists in Denmark discovered that whispering bats are 100 times louder than they previously thought. Whispering bats were thought to be. only species to whisper to one another while most species of bats have loud shrieking calls instead of whispering the scientists discovered that the bats were only controlling the volume of their shrieking so as to be attractive to certain kinds of prey today i really wanted a milkshake This, this this Selective mutism is an anxiety disorder in which children who are physically able to speak voiced voice only speak selectively, in private, usually to parents and to caretakers. Many children with selective mutism talk only in whispers. Some of these children with selective mutism become adults with selective mutism.
2: Others grow up to speak. That was Whisper Essay by Laura Mayer. Laura's currently finishing up a web internship with the Third Coast Festival, and then she's headed to New York at the end of June. To hear more of her work or to participate in her interactive How Are You Doing project, visit thirdcoastfestival.org and click on Resound.
3: I'm doing great. Thank you. Today's one of those days that I just want to lay in bed, knock it up, and just stay there all day, all
2: day long. I am doing so good. Oh yeah. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio. As Laura whispered to us in the previous piece, a small number of adults in the world, no one knows quite how many, suffer from a rare disorder called selective mutism. They're unable to speak with anyone outside their immediate family, and they communicate by writing notes, using a keyboard, or in this age of omnipresent social networking, uploading testimonial videos to YouTube. Well,
4: I wanted to talk about talking I don't know if
5: that's much of a subject, but it's something that's difficult for me to do at times.
2: In our next piece, Elle, a young woman with selective mutism, shares stories about her attempts to interact with the wider world. Her written diary is given a voice by actor Pia Miranda. Here's Elle's story by Natalie Kesticher.
4: What do people assume when they meet you? What do they assume about you? Probably, yeah.
1: Introduction. My name is Elle and I'm 26 years old. Those are my details, but are they really an introduction to who I am? I'm sure there are a lot of 26-year-olds in the world named L. Some spell it like me with an E and an L. Some spell it with an E double L E. But what makes me different from all those other L's out there is that I have an illness It's called selective mutism, and, by the way, the voice you're listening to is not mine, but the words are.
4: One, two, three, one, two, three. Okay, it's working now. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you some questions, and um, if you don't mind... Just typing your answers up there. Is that okay? Okay. Why can't you speak? So you don't know what caused your condition.
6: I'm Elle's mum, and I'm going to talk to you about Elle. Elle was um, very bright, okay? She was very talkative. Um, Well, everybody would stop and stare. She'd get up and perform for people. She'd sing, she'd dance. She thought she was Shirley Temple at the time, and she knew all the songs. She was very talkative, but she had fears. She had little fears, little phobias. Um, Yeah, well, she stopped talking at the age of about five. She did talk at school and she spoke to everybody, but she just stopped. And I didn't find out about it until about three months down the track when I went to a parent-teacher interview and they had told me Elle was doing so much better when she was talking. And I had no idea. And because we left it for such a long time, she sort of like, it was a phobia. It was a ritual that she had built. And outside the school... She would speak to people, but then it became less and less and less, like she would meet new people and she stopped talking to them. And just the handful of people that she actually spoke to, she carried on speaking to the rest of her life. And she never spoke to anybody else.
1: Primary school. I was popular at primary school. The girl who didn't speak but would colour people's nails with highlighters. The girl who didn't speak but would share her lamington with her friends? The girl who didn't speak but would have the coolest birthday parties ever? You know, kids never judge you when they're young, so what if you're different? That just makes you more exciting in their eyes. I had friends, went to parties and felt like a real child. However, there comes a point in every child's life when they start to grow up and there are some downsides to that. The innocent child eyes are gone and the judging starts, which means that in the end of year six I lost my best friend. I remember her saying, You still don't talk to me. I don't think we should see each other much. A right old stab in the heart, if you ask me.
6: She had a couple of friends, not many, and as she got older I think she had to buy her friends by, you know bringing them rubbers and pencils and silly things like that. Um, A lot of the kids used her. A lot of the kids abused her, which was, you know, very sad, but there was nothing I could do. Of course, the kids that had problems themselves picked on her because she was there, she didn't talk, she didn't speak, you know, so she got abused physically and verbally by other children as well.
1: So why do I still have the condition today and why did I stop talking 21 years ago? I don't know, but there is an explanation as to why some people get this illness. This is what Dr Elizabeth Woodcock says. She's a psychologist who runs a clinic in Sydney for children with selective mutism.
7: Hi, Ellen, how are you? I'm Elizabeth. Good to see you. I've actually been looking forward to it. I've never met someone who knew about selective mutism before. I can imagine that you've probably been a little bit nervous, looking forward to meeting me. Um, And I'm I'm actually quite excited to be here today to talk to you about selective mutism and, and hopefully answer all the questions that you have. When I was young, no clinics knew about selective mutism. I can imagine that um, it was quite difficult for you growing up with no-one really being able to recognise the selective mutism. And I think even nowadays a lot of times children are misdiagnosed or the selective mutism isn't picked up. So I think we're still getting to where we need to be in terms of identifying selective mutism. What do I think causes selective mutism? What uh, what I believe and, and what the research also shows is that any anxiety disorder has quite a strong genetic component. So most kids I see with selective mutism, at least one parent will be quite anxious and generally both parents as well, or at least had anxiety as a child. So there's definitely a strong genetic component. But then with most anxiety problems, there also seems to be a role of conditioning factors. So there may be certain things that happen during preschool or or early school that just make the child more self-conscious about talking. Could it be trauma? Trauma. The research actually shows that there's no relation between trauma and selective mutism. So I'm sure that some children with selective mutism, just like some children without selective mutism, have trauma in the backgrounds, but it definitely shows that trauma isn't the the cause of
1: selective mutism. High school. When I think back on my high school years, I wonder, what would it have been like if I had spoken? Is it really like it is in those trashy television programs or teen movies? Or are they all fiction? Of course, I did look around me at what the other students were doing, but being an outsider, I guess I saw as much as anyone could see when looking through a window that's covered in fog. There are many things that I do remember, like being locked in the principal's office on my first day of high school. She said, OK... You stay in my office until you talk. She must have thought I was being disobedient or rude, so the whole day I just sat there silently until finally she let me go. And there was that science teacher, whose name I'd better not write. Every science lesson I'd stand outside the room for a moment before walking in... The word science that was written in thick black letters on the pale green door blinded my eyes because I stared at it too much. She was a big lady in her early fifties, maybe late forties. When asking the class questions, she'd point her finger at me. You, she'd say. Her voice would carry around the room like a thunderbolt but aim straight at me. She knew I couldn't speak, but she'd go out of her way to ask me questions make me feel low. She'd always address me as you and point why she would address everyone else in the class by their names. It was as if saying my name was as bad as saying the F word.
4: You've been looking for a job lately. That means going to job interviews. How does that work? but you have to write notes when they ask you questions. It sounds really hard.
1: Looking for work. I enter the job interview. The lady knows I don't speak, however she seems a bit freaked out. It's like she has no idea what she should say. Then she finally asks me to sit down. I do just that. She asks me questions, just like she'd asked somebody who spoke, then tells me to write down my answer. Well, duh, what else would I do? Speak? I wish. After the interview, she says I've done well, says she will email me, says maybe I've got the job. Weeks go by and there is no email. I email her and ask her about the job. Then finally a week, maybe more after, I get a reply. Sorry, the position has been filled. There's no explanation, just Sincerely and her name and the name of the company who've shut the door in my face and their phone number, which is no use for me because I have no voice.
7: What are common traits most selective mutism people have? Oh, there's so many things. I mean, I I guess for the children I see, the common trait is that they feel anxious in social situations when they're required to talk. And so they have difficulty talking, usually at school, sometimes in the playground with their friends as well, and often at the shops or in other situations like that where they're meeting unfamiliar people. A lot of the kids I see are actually the most talkative at home, particularly, you know, if there's large families, parents will say this child actually is the noisiest at home. So that's a common trait, and I I think they save up all their words during the day and then they all sort of come out at home. Sometimes kids with selective mutism also have other anxieties, so it's not just about talking. And you're asking, like, phobias... Uh, Yes, it can be like phobias, not always. Sometimes there's anxiety about performing in other ways in social situations, like eating in front of other people
1: or going to the toilet. When I try to speak, I freak out. It's almost like I'm waiting to have my teeth pulled out at the dentist, locked in a small room with no windows or doors. Stuck in a lift, I start to sweat. I feel like I need somebody there to hug me and tell me it's all going to be okay. So why, when I'm at home, behind closed doors, can I speak like a normal girl? There is the mute me. There is the talking me. The mute me always stays quiet when she has heaps to say. The talking me says rubbish even when she has nothing to say. The mute me is always too shy to go near people. The talking me annoys people too much. The mute me always wears a smile pretending to be okay. The talking me frowns and shows her real feelings. The mute me is always by herself. The talking me is always with people. The mute me is silent. The talking me is a troublemaker. I wish I could be in between the two me's. That would be the real me. Well, she'd come home and, of course, she'd have to let it all out because she was frustrated
6: from holding it in all day. So she'd come home and they'd be screaming and yelling and carrying on. So she never really spoke quietly. She she was always very, very loud. She was frustrated. Of course, anybody would be frustrated leaving in the morning holding it in for the whole day and then coming home. It upset me very much, but there was nothing I could do, you know. We went to so many different people and so many different places and then we'd have breaks and then we'd start again with someone else and then we'd have a break. We looked at every aspect. We tried everything that we could. But, you know, there was nothing out there, that no one that could help us. She used to promise me, when I'm seven, I'll talk. When I'm eight, I'll talk. And I'll say, well, why don't you talk? Because people will laugh at me. And I said, why will they laugh? Oh, when they hear my voice, they'll make fun of me. So we tried tape recordings. We tried all sorts of things to see what the class would think if they heard her speak on the tape. No one laughed. I don't know. I've always thought maybe she's punishing herself or something. Why? I don't know. I don't know. She didn't have a very good relationship with her father. Um, I think he saw himself in her and that hurt him. So he resented that in her. He's got phobias and things as well. No, we had a terrible... They grew up in a terrible environment. It was always yelling, screaming, fighting. I think when she was about 12 and her sister was about 9, they begged me to leave him. You know, little children begging me to leave him stupid me had two more kids, <laughs> thinking it would get better, but, you know, it got worse. He always... Well, it doesn't matter. We shouldn't really talk about this, shall we? It's up to you. Yeah. Mm, I don't know. I mean, I guess See, that could be a big part
1: of it. I don't know. I don't know.
6: I don't know. I really don't
1: know. Who names illnesses... That's the question I keep asking myself over and over again whenever I hear the term selective mutism. A cold is called a cold because you catch it sometimes when you're out late in the cold. Hay fever is called hay fever because some people with it are allergic to hay and grass as well as dust. Why, though, is my condition called selective mutism? To select something, you must choose it. And I do not choose not to speak. There was one teacher, I remember year 10, and
6: in year 10, you know, like, they give you passes, credits, fails. She failed Yale right out, and I said, why did you fail her? There was other children that had worse results. She goes, because she doesn't speak. She was actually quite nasty, a really nasty person, because she thought Yale did it on purpose. She said to her, look, God gave you a voice, I've heard you yell and scream in the street to your mum, so obviously you know how to speak. And I think the whole year she was just nasty to Elle. She thought maybe that would make her speak. Shock her into it. Shock her into it, yeah. And
4: it didn't work. It
6: didn't work, no.
1: Unpaid trials, internships, work experience, you know? Waiting to see if you've got the job. Work for a week and we'll let you know by the end of the week if it's yours. Do this for us, and if it's good enough, we'll hire you. Let us use your work without paying you a bloody cent. We can't hire you. No, we can't, because the boss won't allow it. Why not? Because you do not talk. Hmm. Do I need to talk to the computer when I'm writing a magazine article? Oh, computer, you beautiful thing. Work faster. Stop being so slow. Maybe I need to sing to the paint to make pink out of red and white. And if I don't make sound, I won't get the colours I'm after. La, 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 la. Do I need to yell to the dishes when I'm cooking in the kitchen? Bloody hell, you're dirty. What's the answer? Should I really not get a job because I don't speak? I could apply for a disability pension, but I won't. Why? Because I love working and I want to find a job.
7: The preferred treatment nowadays is called cognitive behavioural therapy and that has two main parts. So the cognitive part refers to thinking and that looks at the role of our thoughts in anxiety And in any situation, if we're thinking about it in an anxious way, so if we're worried about what someone will say or how they'll react when we talk to them or what someone will think about what we've said or how our voice sounds or if we say the right or the wrong thing, then we're going to be a lot more anxious about talking. So the cognitive part looks at helping us to notice those unhelpful ways that we're thinking and learn strategies to actually change them to more helpful patterns of thinking. The behavioural part is is usually the um, the more dominant part of the therapy that we use for children, and that involves helping them to face their fear. Helping them to face their fear, but that's done in a very graded way. So if I asked you to talk right now, then that would be like asking someone with a phobia of heights to bungee jump off a tower. But if we break down that fear into very tiny steps, that might be or will be anxiety provoking but would still be achievable. So for example, with children, we could get them to practice nonverbal communication. So it could be handing money to a shopkeeper or it could be... Uh, nodding in response to a teacher's question or even standing in front of the class and presenting the news non-verbally by holding up things. If we get them to practice that small step, then over time the anxiety will reduce and they'll be very comfortable doing that and then they'll be more prepared to take that next small
1: step. I wake up in the morning with aches in my tummy. Why? I'm nervous, I have a job interview. The interview is at a childcare centre on the North Shore. I sit in the waiting area with another girl as a boy leaves the centre with papers. I'm called in next. The other girl remains sitting there playing with a thread on the sleeve of her jumper. Inside the room are two blonde women. One tall woman who's the mother of one of the children who goes to the kindergarten and the shorter of the two is the director. When they smile at me, the room goes from tense to more friendly. They ask me questions and I answer them. Why do I want to be a cook and a childcare worker? Do I think kids will listen to me even though I do not speak?
8: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen
1: What do I know about keeping a kitchen clean, germ control, etc? The interview is pleasant, but I walk out of there looking to the ground. I've learned not to expect much from life. I see the other girl who's waiting walk in after me as I leave. To my surprise, when I get home, I find an email in my inbox from the kindergarten. I open it even before I have time to think of what it could say and read it. They liked me. They'd like me to come in for a trial. I read the words over and over again just to make sure they're real.
4: A few psychologists have told me that they've never heard of adults having selective mutism. Have you ever heard of other adults having it? Yeah, there was an article in Nat's Life a few months ago. My family bought it. It's about a girl who was about 24 who got married, had a baby and yet she doesn't speak a word outside her house. It brought tears to my eyes as I read it. Is that in Australia? Yes. But also in the USA there are a few people who have the condition. I joined the club on Facebook. And there's a few people in their twenties with a condition. While it's rare, it does exist. There's one guy and he posts himself talking on YouTube and he said, why is it so easy for me to talk to my camera? but why can't I talk to anybody else? Stuff like that. Have you managed to get any insights into the condition through your communication with these people? Well, a lot of them say that the longer you leave it, the harder it gets to overcome it. Do you agree with that? I guess when you say the longer you leave it, that kind of implies that there's some element of, not choice, but to some extent, you can choose when you leave it. How does one leave it? You need to be brave.
1: I start my new job at the kindergarten. I cook the kids cheese and spinach triangles and meet the staff. After sleep time, I get to play with the kids and the day goes really well. The director is a great help. She compliments me and makes me feel like I'm doing a good job. The staff all seem friendly. Tonight, I lay in bed and smile. It's the first time in a while I'm not frowning because I don't have a job or whatever other reasons make me angry. I think of the kids and even start to laugh. Elle, where's your voice? one asked. The teacher wondered how she should tell the children about my condition after saying, She can't talk because some people can't do things. Some can't talk, some can't see. Some can't hear or even walk. The kids still wanted more answers. Why not? Why can't she talk? I decided to tell the teacher what to say that the evil sea witch Ursula took away my voice. <laughs> it was what the kids wanted to hear. So, Elle was a mermaid? Where's your prince? <laughs> Even as kids, they must have known it was just a fairy tale, but it was a way to make me relate to somebody else, to the little mermaid.
4: Could I ask you a question? You want to ask me a question? Okay, sure. What do you think of this picture I've taken? I take pictures of models. I also paint a lot. These are your photographs, are they? This is a photograph, a black and white photograph of a girl. The only thing that's coloured are her eyes. And she has kind of like a big, not band-aid, sort of like a big white plaster over her mouth. And written on the bottom right-hand corner of the plaster is the word mute. And she looks kind of terrified. I like the photo. Why did you only colour her eyes? Because people think she's sick, but when they look in her eyes they see she's just like them, normal. I picked a model who had big brown eyes like me. Yeah, I like it.
1: I find work easy. What I find hard is when I'm sitting in the lunchroom with the other staff. They all talk amongst themselves and occasionally they'll talk to me. I've been working at the kindy for a few weeks and the director is leaving. Today's her last day and there's a sad vibe surrounding the place. She's been a really good boss. The kids sing her a little song about missing her. I wonder who's going to take her place and if they'll be nice like her. That afternoon I do an activity with the children where I put a huge piece of paper on the floor and get them to lie on it. With a felt-tip black texter, I draw around their bodies. I make an outline. They get up then and colour it in, drawing eyes, noses, and mouths. Ella, one of the oldest girls, always amazes me with her talent. I stay back that afternoon and wait for her mother to pick her up. I write a note about her daughter's talent and offer her free art lessons. She says she'll think about it and get back to me after she discusses it with her husband.
7: Do some people with selective mutism never talk again? Uh, again, I guess that comes back to the question of whether adults have selective mutism. And generally, almost every case, except for a couple and, and yourself, do eventually start talking And that doesn't mean that it's easy talking. So people with social phobia will generally avoid social situations because they feel so anxious and uncomfortable in them and they'll tend to stay around people who are really familiar, like their family and and their partner and obviously their children. So they are able to talk but will try and avoid it as much as possible.
1: These days I never do anything right according to the new director... I was doing so well and now nothing I do is good enough. When it's raining or when the kids are naughty, I have to do the afternoon kitchen clean as well. They say that because I don't talk, I probably can't handle the kids. That hurts me when they tell me that. They try to explain to me why they think that and I walk away pissed off. I feel like yelling but instead I just go and give one of the kids a big hug. I could probably look after them better than they could. Kids love me. They come to me around the table and do whatever activity I set up. When I don't get to play with the kids, I feel sad. I even stay back late sometimes just to play with them. But I don't talk, so I'm not as good as the other workers. I decide to leave my job. I know that my boss thinks I'm not suited for it and I know damn well I am. I could stay and prove myself, but by doing that I get home every night miserable and start a fight with my partner. What I really want to do is paint, draw, write. I want a job that's more creative. I have a diploma in fine art and a Bachelor of Arts degree in communication. In this job, I'm being held back. If
4: I asked you um, to talk into a tape recorder when you're by yourself, would you be able to do that? Maybe. I'm not sure. I have for primary school oral assignments, but that was long ago. Oh well, maybe I'll give you the tape just to take home and Okay, sure.
1: Last week I saw an ad on seek.com so I SMS the workplace. They're looking for an artist to design stuff for t-shirts. I have an interview, so I get ready and go. I'm sure in the SMS I wrote that I don't speak, but when I get there, they don't know. I don't have expectations. Actually, I do, for rejection. They interview me, then ask if I would like to be trained. I jump at the opportunity. They're unsure for how long, as there's a lot I have to learn about the T-shirt industry, but I'm happy.
4: So how's your new job? That's good. How do you communicate with your workmates? I email them or they call out and I'll go to them and write. The communication's flowing nicely. Except I can't answer the phone, obviously. I usually stay on the computer during lunch. But I do talk to the two younger workmates who are guys about art and stuff. They're very friendly, and we don't just talk about work.
1: It's fun having a computer, Photoshop, Illustrator, and doing art. I finally feel like I belong at my work. They don't treat me like I'm less than them, and they've put my t shirt designs on t shirts, and my t shirts are going to be sold to the public. I feel great, but I also feel scared. Are they good enough? They have to be if they're using them, I tell myself. I sit at work and I think of my past, present and the future. I wonder how much better life will be when I start to speak, when I find my voice.
5: is my voice, the other one is an actor. <clears throat> I am behind a closed door, no one can hear me, that's why I When I was younger, this is how I used to do assignments at school. I used to record it at home and play the tape in class. I wish I could talk like everybody else. I I really do. People think I'm a snob, but I'm not. It's a fear, a fear that I wish one day I will get over. (laughs) When I'm at home, I talk like a normal person. So why, when I'm not feeling comfortable, can I not talk? I honestly don't know. Everyone wants an answer, but if I gave you one, it would be made up, because in my heart, I don't know, I really don't know, but I wish that I could speak, that's the one thing I do know.
2: was Elle's Story, by Natalie Kesticher. It originally aired on Radio I on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. You're listening to ReSound, from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Delaney Hall, filling in for Gwen Maxi. Today, we're listening to stories that explore silence and quiet. What do you think of Elle's story? Let us know. Send all comments and questions to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Sometimes, to hear the quietest things, you need a lot of patience. Patience and really, really good microphones. Our next piece is about Chris Watson, who is a big deal in the world of nature sound recording. He's created documentaries for the BBC and done sound design for David Attenborough and other wildlife documentarians. He's created sound installations all around the world and collaborated with musicians inspired by his work. He specializes in capturing the sounds and music of nature, from the thunderous groan of icebergs to the delicate, almost imperceptible without a microphone, sound of a rare bird's mating dance.
8: It's still one of my favourite recordings, the birds of Capercaillie. It's a bird of the highlands of Scotland. The, the old Gallic name is Horse of the Woods. It's a very large game bird. What Capercaillies and some other birds do, they sing these beautiful, intimate, delicate songs to the nearby females. And then they have these huge flutter jumps they call, where they leap into the air and beat the wings, and you can hear this on the recording. It's this rather operatic, very theatrical vocal work that comes out of the darkness. The sounds that they make, even though you can hear some of them through the forest, the low frequency sounds of the wing beats, The very tiny communicative sounds, the the vocalizations, the clicks and pops, some people say it sounds like champagne corks popping, are actually very quiet and just a few yards away you wouldn't hear this sound so in order to record it I had to put microphones very close to this communal area out in the forest. I I do regard it as this sort of secret world, and I love tuning into that, you know, whether it's a capercaillie or even an insect, you know, I love getting microphones in really close, because that's when you hear all this astonishing detail and rhythm and texture. I remember when well, my parents actually bought me this inspired gift, it was either for Christmas or my birthday, but I was about eleven years old and they bought me a, a national, a Japanese reel to reel tape recorder, but it was a tiny battery operated portable one. And then I realised because it was a battery operated machine, I wasn't I didn't have to use it indoors, I could I could take it outside. and, and that was the the single most liberating moment. What I can remember was looking out of the kitchen window into our back garden at home and watching the birds feed. And looking at it through the window, it was like a silent film. And I was fascinated just to know what it sounded like, but of course I couldn't be there because I'd frightened them off. So I ran outside, frightened them off, put some more food down but put my little microphone on top of the bird table and then ran back indoors, set it recording and then running out, uh, bringing the recorder back inside and then playing this tape back and just being introduced into this secret world, this this audio environment where I would never get the opportunity of listening to things in reality So the effect of it has stayed with me you know up until today we found this cheetah that was resting under a baobab tree one afternoon in the middle of the day. And we were there several hours and I had my microphone on a pole and I was poking it about in this baobab tree, recording insects feeding on some of the flowers uh, and birds that would come into the tree. And then I slowly started to drop the microphone down vertically. And when it got within about well, three yards of this, this cheetah, I could see a chest rising and falling, but I could also hear she was purring, just the same as any cat. Just purring away. And you, you know, you start to hear other things, that sort of rise and fall of her breath, but that's, that creates this wonderful, deep rhythm. I think it's very musical, that piece. I don't know if there's a divide between field recordings and music. For me there isn't, you know, it's, it's sound and I love listening to it. I still like to think I've got this sort of childlike excitement of when I was 11, you know, just dipping into these these different secret, you know, sound worlds. Being able to go somewhere, just stop, stand there in the very first instance, open my ears and really listen to a place when you start to hear detail in the background and you start to hear the ebb and flow of sounds. Most of our lives, you know, we're so surrounded by noise pollution, whether it's our bank playing music to us down on mobile phones, or you walk into a shop and there's music, or a cafe or there's a restaurant, there's so much inappropriate sound in that sense, that we spend most of our lives with our ears closed simply to get through the day-to-day process of communicating. So we hear everything, but we rarely take the opportunity to listen. That
2: was Chris Watson. To hear more of his recordings and to see pictures of him at work in the fields, visit ThirdCoastFestival.org. So while we're definitely not on par with Chris Watson, the Third Coast Festival staff does a lot of traveling and taping, too. Most recently, the festival's artistic director, Julie Shapiro, went to Dublin for an international radio conference, and she brought back some sounds from Ireland to share with us. One in particular stood out to her.
9: Well... you know that movie Once, that Irish movie about the busker who falls in love with the woman from I think the Czech Republic, and mm-hmm. it's this very sweet romance, and they fall in love and they write beautiful music together and it's a you know, tragic romance of course, but it really paints the picture of the busking scene in Ireland fairly well I don't know you, but I want you all So I I had a sense of what it might be like to run into musicians on the street. But what I didn't expect was to turn the corner down an alley on a very not well-traveled pedestrian route and run into this man named Georgie, who was sitting on a stool strumming a guitar. Um, Georgie was wearing kind of a leprechaun hat with a lot of things glued to it, and he (laughs) had a fake beard on. But he was sitting there just strumming away to a cassette of Eastern European folk music, and I was mesmerized. It was the most beautiful thing I had heard the whole trip. So I think what was so memorable about Georgie and why um, he holds a special place in my heart now is because it was such a surprise to find him sitting there. It's not at all what I expected Dublin to sound like. And what's amazing is that the world is full of these surprising sounds. We have ideas about how places sound based on books we've read, movies we've seen, um, just common sense. But usually when you get out into the world, even in your own neighborhood, you often hear things that you don't expect to hear.
2: That was Julie Shapiro, the artistic director of the Third Coast Festival. So today on ReSound, inspired by this idea of unexpected sounds, we're launching a new project. We're turning the tables and we're asking you to send sound to us. Sounds from around your neighborhood or even from farther away, maybe the places that you visit on your travels. If you've got a sound that you want us to hear, convert a couple of minutes of it to an MP3 and send it to thirdcoastfestival@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Please also include a brief description of the sound and some information about where you recorded it. If it catches our ears, we'll get in touch with you and play it on the show. So send your surprising sounds to thirdcoastfestival at gmail.com. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival, an independent media arts organization in Chicago. I'm Delaney Hall, filling in for Gwen Maxey. ReSound is curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro. Our fearless Third Coast interns are Annie Geimer and Jacob Anderson. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. The Third Coast Festival is made possible with lead support from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, Chicago's Navy Pier, and American Airlines. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.